Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Systemic anticoagulation with heparin is routinely administered in adult patients on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation as a means to prevent circuit occlusion and thromboembolic events. Heparin has historically been the anticoagulant of choice due to cost, ease of monitoring, drug familiarity, and antidote availability. Yet the clot thickens given heparin's known complications of HIT and heparin resistance. In episode 58 of our podcast, the focus was on bivalrudin use in pediatric ECMO. But in today's episode, Dr. Hannah Brockmeyer dives into literature describing heparin and bivalrudin as systemic anticoagulants in the adult ECMO population. The overwhelming majority of hospitalized patients are on some form of systemic anticoagulation, with unfractionated heparin has historically been our go-to as it's able to be quickly turned off and on around procedures. It comes in premixed bags, and staff are fairly familiar with how it's dosed and monitored in the hospital. This really allows us to adjust our anticoagulation plans around the patient's fluctuating medical course. But while we're very familiar with heparin as it's such a common inpatient medication, what are some scenarios where we should or could consider an alternative? And how do these alternatives compare to what we're comfortable doing? Specifically, an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which I will now refer to as ECMO, the majority of these patients require some systemic anticoagulation for prolonged periods of time. These patients are critically ill, so it's important that we have an anticoagulant that we can adjust to their fluctuating medical course. We can see from this graph from 2000 until about 2009, the number of centers and patients utilizing ECMO was fairly consistent. Until 2009, with our H1N1 pandemic, we start to see a rapid rise in patients using ECMO support with our COVID-19 pandemic at this peak end. As we've begun to care for more and more patients on ECMO, we've really similarly seen a rapid rise in the literature concerning how to best care for our patients, including systemic anticoagulation. Part of what's driven this rapid rise in literature in recent years is that we've rechallenged the use of historical heparin and started to explore other, other anticoagulants, such as bivalrudin, in the past five years. As more and more information is published on how to best care for these patients, the plot begins to thicken, and the choice for how we anticoagulate them becomes more and more complex. Nevertheless, as today we set out how to answer the question how to best anticoagulate our patients, we're going to examine the similarities and differences between heparin and bivalrudin's pharmacokinetic and dynamic properties and how they relate to ECMO support. We also want to recognize certain situations that we would favor one agent over the other in ECMO. And finally, we'll be able to determine a preferred agent for ECMO when either heparin or bivalrudin would be acceptable. So let's first take a step back and talk about what exactly is ECMO. ECMO provides some form of cardiopulmonary bypass and gives support to our patients. There's two main types of ECMO, and first we'll start with venovenous or VV ECMO. 
So essentially, VV ECMO is all about bypassing our lungs as patients who are on VV ECMO typically have um, severe respiratory distress or dysfunction. And so in VV ECMO, blood is removed from an area around the right atrium. It is then pumped through an oxygenator, which, act, which is able to act as our artificial lung. That blood is then returned into the right atrium, where it then moves through the rest of our circulation. So we can see here, represented by these arrows, and they are by no means an all-inclusive list. These are various points throughout our ECMO circuit where microthrombi or clots have the potential to form. It's worth noting that since the blood is then returned into the right atrium, any microthrombi that are formed on our circuit um, will have the potential to then be caught by our pulmonary circulature in the lungs and before moving on to the rest of our body. VA ECMO is similar, where the blood is typically removed in an area around that right atrium and then pumped through the oxygenator, which acts as our artificial lung. However, this time, the blood is then returned into the aorta and so we are able to then both bypass our lungs and our heart. As we think about how the blood is returned to the aorta, if clots would form on the circuit, as can happen just as on VV ECMO, those one of the next steps for blood to flow would be our brain. So there's an increased risk for the potential for these patients on VA ECMO to develop a stroke. So we've examined how ECMO works, but why is it so important to anticoagulate most, most of our ECMO patients? First, let's revisit several principles that really apply to clot formation in all of our inpatients, including circulatory stasis, dysfunction of our blood vessels endothelium, and patients being a little bit more hypercoagulable. So for general uh, medical inpatients, some examples of circulatory stasis, there's a lot of our hospital pa patients are immobile, and atrial fibrillation can also lead to stasis in our hearts. We think about endothelial dysfunction as being a repercussion of uncontrolled hypertension or hyperlipidemia. And finally, some examples of patients being at an increased hypercoagulable state include pregnancy, certain medications, and potentially inherited disorders as well. Now, how these principles are also specifically applied to ECMO include, in ECMO, there's certain places around the circuit where we can see a decreased venous flow. And depending on the patient, there could be the potential that they have intercardiac stasis as well. One indication for ECMO could be that these patients um, before cannulation had an infection or they later develop one while on ECMO. Another thing to think about is the act of cannulation itself can cause dysfunction of our endothelium. And finally, there are several interactions, including the one between the patient's blood and the ECMO circuit itself that can put our patients at an increased risk for being a little bit more hypercoagulable. So now that we've talked about that these patients are at a high risk of developing a clot, it'd be really important to put them on an effective anticoagulant that does a good job at preventing clots for our patient. So if we look at unfractionated heparin, which we've historically used, compared to more recent data's data looking at bivalrudin, several of these um, studies really evaluated how effective these anticoagulants are preventing thrombi from occurring. And you can see here, there was a numerical trend in most of these studies favoring um, bivalrudin as having less patients developing a thrombus, with one study reaching a significant difference between the two. However, it's worth noting that in several of these studies, there was a major practice shift 
from using unfractionated heparin to then changing to bivalrudin. As we recall from our earlier graph, as we've learned more and more about how to best anticoagulate our patients, there may be the potential for temporal bias here. So we've talked about that. Overall, I would say there's some data to say that bivalrudin might be a little bit better at reducing the risk of thrombus, but it seems to be fairly even between the two groups. And so there's not a clear-cut winner for what is better at decreasing our risk of thrombus. Another question to ask ourselves in an anticoagulant is which one might be safer? So as we look at the similar studies here, that data becomes even more murkier, as some favor unfractionated heparin and others bivalrudin. Again, the same study that saw a significant difference for unfractionated heparin here saw a significant difference, of, again, favoring bivalrudin for less bleeding events between the two. Another objective way to look at major bleeding is to evaluate how many patients needed product transfusions. These four studies evaluated the differences between unfractionated heparin and bivalrudin and how much blood products needed to be administered. Two of our studies in two, two or three product groups saw a significant increase in patients needing transfusions while on heparin compared to bivalrudin. While two studies, there was not a significant difference with being on either agent and patients needing a transfusion. So I would say here, there's some data, mostly in the objective category, that really kind of supports that bivalrudin might have our potential to decrease our risk of bleeding. And since other the two major things we think about of efficacy and safety, we don't have quite yet have a clear-cut winner between the two. I'm curious to know, what are other principles you guys think about being important when picking an ideal anticoagulant? So I'd invite you to join Poll Everywhere. Um, by joining, you can text two, MayoRx to 22333, or you can respond at pollev.com slash MayoRx. So these were some of the ideal characteristics that I thought about when I was thinking about an anticoagulant that would be important. And if you're not as familiar with ECMO, these can be characteristics that would apply to any patient on anticoagulant. So I invite you now to select um, one or two, one of these um, anticoagulant characteristics that's really important to you when you would pick an ideal agent. Well, I'll give a little bit more time um, for people to express their characteristics of one, uh, or opinions about a characteristic that they think would be ideal. It's interesting to see that we do have a spread here with a lot of people thinking you know, ease of monitoring would be really important to them, reversibility, and having a rapidly titratable agent, um, with one person having cost be an impounding factor on what their choice anticoagulant would be. So today during our presentation, we'll evaluate the literature that looks at most of these characteristics and see how bivalrudin and heparin compare, or assess that currently we don't have enough evidence to declare a winner for the characteristic itself. So first, as we talk about these two agents, it's important to have a great understanding of how exactly they work. So inactive antithrombin is unable to bind and actively work on, inhibit thrombin and factor 10A until heparin binds to it and then allows antithrombin to be inactive. This then allows antithrombin to then have its effects on thrombin and anti-10A and decrease our clot formation. Now, bivalrudin does not reply on, or rely on the antithrombin cofactor to exert its mechanism of action, and it's able to bind to both soluble and already clot-bound thrombin to have its effects. So we know that heparin relies on antithrombin to really have that effect on decreasing our clot formation. So it's an important cofactor for it to work. 
But how exactly, how important is antithrombin for heparin to have an effect? And how much of it do we really need for it to work well? So this study took samples of patients, plasma samples of patients, who had a consistent amount of heparin in them. They then depleted the amount of antithrombin that was in the heparin to see at what point of antithrombin, what percent of antithrombin could we have, and still see an effect from the heparin. And so as they measured the APTTs, they saw that blood could be depleted all the way down to an antithrombin <coughs> level about 30%. And it would still have a similar APTT at blood that had 100% of what's considered to be our normal antithrombin level. This is important as we think about some of these patients cannulated on ECMO come from cardiac surgery, or they're on high doses of heparin, and we may have used up a lot of our antithrombin available. And so it's worth noting that while antithrombin is important for heparin to work, these patients don't necessarily need to be at 100% for it to have its effects. But overall, as Bival Rudin, we don't need antithrombin at all for it to work. I would give it the point of having an independent and unique mechanism of action compared to heparin. Another thing that we identified as being an important characteristic is our rapid on and off, as these patients are at a high risk of thrombosis occurring. And so one study evaluated all of their patients and a subgroup on high-intensity anticoagulation, and they wanted to know how quickly the anticoagulant got to a therapeutic APTT. And what they saw was that bivalrudin had about five hours to time to therapeutic, whereas unfractionated heparin, it was between 15 and 20 hours. Although this study did not achieve statistical significance, I would say 5 to 15 to 20 as a comparison is pretty clinically significant. This isn't surprising as we recall that the half-life of bivalrudin is shorter than a heparin, and so it makes sense that our time to a therapeutic APTT would be a little bit quicker. And it's also worth noting that these patients were started on anticoagulation after cardiac surgery, and there may have been decreased levels of antithrombin available causing the heparin to work a little bit slower and for its time to reach a therapeutic APTT. So overall, I would say that we saw one study where there may have been a difference, although it did not achieve significance, but when we think about how a bivalrudin works in its half-life, um, this characteristic of being rapid on and off may tend to favor towards bivalrudin. Not only is it important to achieve our target APTT, but it's ideal that we stay within our target range so we're appropriately anticoagulating our patients. These three studies assess this difference of time to therapeutic range of unfractionated heparin compared to bivalrudin, and they all achieved a significant difference favoring bivalrudin remaining within that therapeutic range between the two groups. Several other studies looked at this in a little bit of a different way. One study that saw more that saw that bivalrudin did have more time within that therapeutic range, saw a clinical outcome that when more dose adjustments were needed, that this was an independent risk factor for an increased risk of bleeding. And another study, although they did not evaluate the time within the therapeutic range, did see more dose changes and adjustments per day with our unfractionated heparin. So overall, I would say bivalrudin, the majority of our studies really showed that it does stay within our therapeutic range more consistently than what we've seen with our heparin. So not only is it important to remain within our therapeutic range, but how does what our body does to the drug affect how the medication stays there? So heparin is majority hepatically metabolized with some reticuloendothelial system metabolism as well. 
Well, as we recall that antithrombin is important for heparin to work, our liver is what synthesizes the antithrombin. And so in liver dysfunction, you can have a decreased amount of antithrombin produced. But nevertheless, at this time, there's no renal or hepatic dose adjustments that are preemptively needed while on heparin. Thivalrudin, about 20% of that drug, is eliminated by our kidneys. And so there is a dose adjustment recommended for using bivalrudin as the half-life increases depending on the degree of renal impairment. And while 20% of that medication is eliminated by our kidneys, about 80% of it is eliminated by our own plasma esterases. So it's important to keep in mind that caution is warranted with being on bivalrudin if you're going to have areas of blood stasis. A clinical example of what this looks like can be seen in this picture of a patient on VA ECMO. And so you can see here that this patient has left ventricular left ventricle dysfunction with this distended left ventricle. So as they're on VA ECMO, we we'll recall that the blood moves from the right atrium, and the majority of it is then pumped through our circuit, oxygenated, and then returned back into our aorta. As we would be on systemic bivalrudin in this scenario, the APTT of that blood could be estimated to be within our lower end of our goal at about 60 seconds. Although the majority of our blood does move through the circuit, some of it does go through our heart and our lungs as it, as it would in you and I. And so with this blood that does have bivalrudin in it, and we have that left ventricle that may not be able to be pumping as, um, as within a healthy patient, we can start to see that that blood with the bivalrudin can start to pull within that left ventricle. And so while the APTT may start out comparatively to what's in our circuit, over time that pooled blood gives our plasma the opportunity to then degrade it. And so that APTT can begin to drop to a subtherapeutic level, which could have the potential to have a clot form. Now it's worth noting that the left ventricle is not the only place where blood stasis can occur. But this is something to keep in mind, um, that bivalrudin, since our blood degrades it, that if there's a steatic area, that clots have the potential to form. So I would give this point to heparin, being able to use in our patients with severe left ventricular dysfunction, as it does not have um, our blood plasma esterases degrade it. So let's apply what we've talked about so far to a patient case. So let's say you are the CV surgery ICU pharmacist, and a 58-year-old female arrives onto the unit after she underwent a cabbage. She's currently cannulated on VA ECMO. When she arrived to the ED before her cabbage, her presenting diagnosis was a STEMI. It's worth noting that in her past medical history, you see that she has chronic kidney disease stage 4. And a post-surgical echo shows that she has minimal ventricular contractility after that cabbage. So the team comes to you and they want to discuss anticoagulation for your patient. So for her, you would recommend starting bivalrudin due to decreased renal function. Would you start heparin since the patient has ventricular dysfunction? Would you start heparin due to the antithrombin deficiency after the surgery? Or no anticoagulation is necessary in this patient on VA ECMO? As I give a little bit more of time for responses to come in, I'll go through several of these answers. So bivalrudin, while it's important to note that it is, we do need to adjust it for renal dysfunction, that doesn't mean that we can't use it in our patients um, with renal impairment. Heparin does rely on antithrombin 3 for it to have its effect, um, 
but it would be important noting that even if we wanted to start bivalrudin in our patients, that if the patients were depleted from antithrombin-3, that wouldn't be a reason why we could not start the heparin in them as well. Anticoagulation not being necessary, I would say for this patient with the information we have, um, it's reasonable to presume that we should anticoagulate them, although there are several studies that have looked at no anticoagulating, no anticoagulation for our patient. And so I would agree with the majority here that since we've seen that our patient has ventricular dysfunction, it would be appropriate to start the heparin as we've seen that bivalrudin caution should be warranted in blood stasis. So we've talked a lot about time to therapeutic range, staying within our therapeutic range, but when we talk about being within that therapeutic range and our goals, what are exactly the tests that we measure and what are the coagulation factors that make up those tests? So we'll call a coagulation cascade in general with our intrinsic and extrinsic pathway meeting in the common pathway where thrombin activates fibrin and we start to see those cross-linked fibrin clots form. And so what APTT does is it measures a lot of our different coagulation factors, including the two that we're really focused on um, when we think about how our medications work for these patients. So while APTT gives us a really big picture of how anticoagulation works, this has its pros and cons. But it's worth noting that if some of these factors are elevated or depleted, that's going to have an effect on our APTT. So as we would think about, especially factor five and factor eight, is there acute phase reactants? And so in an inflammatory state, you'll potentially have more of these factors, and that can artificially decrease our APTT compared to what we would think about um, being required for heparin to have heparin or bivalrudin to have its effects. And so for our heparin, another way we can monitor our patients is through anti-10A, which as you can see from this picture is a lot more specific to um, just that, that test and how our me mechanism of action of how our drug works. So while anti-10A has its, it's a chromogenic test, um, other opportunities where it could be interfered with is in patients with high triglycerides or hemolysis. So an example, of the an example of how other factors in our blood can impact our APTT comes from a study in non-ECMO patients. These patients were on up to 35,000 units of heparin a day to treat a venous thromboembolism. They were initially monitored by APTT and then were randomized to either continue APTT monitoring or switch to monitoring by anti-10A. Now, since we see that these patients were on a large amount of heparin before they were randomized, it's worth asking ourselves, okay, did, so did it have a decrease in our antithrombin levels or what exactly was impacting our APTT? However, these patients had a normal antithrombin level in their study, but they did have an elevated factor eight, which could have the potential to decrease our APTT for what we would consider typical anticoagulation. So the results of these studies is after that patients were randomized, there was no difference in recurrent VTE, but the patients randomized to that anti-10A group did have a less amount of heparin requirements per day compared to the patients on APTT. And there was no bleeding differences between the two groups. So we've seen that we have kind of a drug specific and a less specific um, test that we can run to evaluate our heparin anticoagulation. So what's out there when we're thinking about monitoring our bivalrudin or other direct thrombin inhibitors? One example of a little bit more drug-specific assay comes from diluted thrombin time. 
In so one study, and again, non-ECMO patients, there were samples of normal and hypercoagulable plasma that had known amounts of bivalrudin um, in the plasma itself. Then both APTT and diluted thrombin time tests were run to see how well that these correlated to the concentration that was known to be um, within the samples. And what we saw that APTT only correlated to the known bivalrudin concentration about 44% of the time, is that dilute thrombin time was a lot more specific, with about 100% correlation for the samples. However, it's worth noting that DTT and other direct thrombin inhibitor specific assays are not routinely available at this time. And so, what is an advantage of using both a drug specific and a non drug specific assay in monitoring our patients on ECMO? This study is an example of a single center's experience with monitoring both and why this may be important for our patients. So in this study, these patients were on heparin, and that heparin um, anticoagulation protocol was primarily driven by anti-10A. And they wanted to assess what, how the, the anti-10A or APTT being within or out of the range had an impact on our two main clinical outcomes of developing a clot or having a major bleed. And so in this graph, we can see that patients who had a major thrombotic event were on sub-therapeutic levels of anti-10A when they developed the clot, and this was significantly different than the patients who did not have a thrombosis form. However, patients who had a major bleeding event were looked to be on average within our goal anti-10A, and this was not different than the patients who didn't have a major bleeding event while on the heparin. And so at the same time, although it was the anticoagulation was driven by our anti-10A, they also looked at APTTs in our patients. And they saw that patients who developed a major, had a major clouding event, there wasn't really a difference between the patients who didn't for um, our APTT. However, patients who had a major bleeding event did have a significantly higher um, maximum APTT at the time. And this was different than the patients who did not have a major bleeding event. And so since we see from this, from this study that maybe the anti-10A, which is a little bit more drug-specific, can help tip us off to patients who may be at more risk of a clot. And that with the APTT being elevated in the patients having a major bleed, since it's less specific to just our, how our medication works, and there's so many other factors that go in, it could tip us off to patients who, are in, um, who have a coagulopathy brewing and could be at in increased risk for a major bleed. So overall, I would say is in our ECMO patients, there is some utility in monitoring both the drug-specific and uh, another assay that gives us more of a holistic picture of the patient's anticoagulation. And so as bivalrudin does not have a drug-specific assay that's routinely available, I would give this point to heparin. So applying what we've talked about so far for our pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties in these medications, which of the following is true about anticoagulation in ECMO? Does bivalrudin rely on a cofactor for therapeutic effect? Is bivalrudin have a drug-specific assay that's widely available for us to monitor? Is heparin associated in these the studies we looked at with a greater time within therapeutic range? Or does heparin require more adjustments to maintain therapeutic levels? So as the answers are starting to come in, I would again have to agree with the majority here, but we'll go through the answers one by one. We'll recall that it's actually heparin that relies on our cofactor of antithrombin to have that therapeutic effect. 
And by Valrudin, although there are drug-specific assays that exist, um, currently there's not one that's typically widely available for a lot of our centers to use and assess our anticoagulation on bivalrudin. We saw from our studies that bivalrudin actually had a greater time within therapeutic range and that heparin required more dose adjustments to maintain those therapeutic levels. Another risk that we think about on our anticoagulation anticoagulants is the potential for developing thrombocytopenia. Specifically, one indication that we've seen patients switch to a direct thrombin inhibitor is the development of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. However, it's important for us to recall that there are two different types of thrombocytopenia, with type 2 being that classic antibody-mediated thrombocytopenia, which is also a lot less common, and requires a few more days for those antibodies to develop and cause that thrombocytopenia. Although it's worth noting that type 2 is a lot more severe, as about between 30 and 80% of our patients do develop a thrombus, whereas type 1, um, one of the, not a lot of patients develop a, thromboemboli a thromboembolism, and so the management for type 1 to be observed. While in type 2, since it's mediated by our own antibodies, it's imperative that you stop the heparin and would then um, transition to an alternative anticoagulant to either prevent clots from forming or prevent them from getting worse. So as we think about our ECMO patients who come from cardiac surgery, which can have the potential to decrease our platelet counts, the ECMO circuit itself has the potential to then have shear stress act on our platelets and decrease our platelet counts. And depending on the indication for ECMO, that indication itself can cause thrombocytopenia. So it's worth asking ourselves that thrombocytopenia, and it does tend to occur in ECMO. And so is the thrombocytopenia we see in our patients due to the anticoagulant, or is it due to being on ECMO itself? So one study evaluated thrombocytopenia in patients who after ECMO cannulation were started on heparin and or were started on bivalrudin. And what they saw was that in the heparin group, the platelet counts steadily declined which is not expected, as I mentioned, there were several reasons for these patients to have a slowly declining platelet count. But what we do see here is that in the bivalrudin group, there was, then the platelets did start to recover, and although this uh, study did not achieve statistical significance, numerically at the end you can see these platelet counts were very different between these two groups. So I would say here, bivalrudin wins the point, as it has less of a risk of thrombocytopenia, being that classic um, immunogenic hit, and just thrombocytopenia in general. Another really important thing to think about in our patients is that they could have a bleed develop. And so if a bleed happens, one thing um, that would be ideal is if that we could act upon it and reverse it. Heparin does have a known reversal agent in protamine, Although protamine is not without its adverse effects, including anaphylaxis and hypotension. Bivalrudin does not have a widely available universal reversal agent, although its half-life is only 25 minutes. Factor 7 has been studied for reversal of bivalrudin, although there's some concern with major thrombotic events after giving Factor 7 for reversal. And although it's not very common that we would fully reverse our patients on systemic anticoagulation, since we can reverse heparin compared to bivalrudin, I would give heparin this point. So overall, we've seen there's not a major difference in efficacy and safety, and there's various pharmacokinetic parameters that can go either way between the two agents. 
So one of the last things that we think about is cost. So not surprisingly, as heparin is a lot older, older of an agent and bivalrudin is the new kid on the block, the overall drug cost is higher in bivalrudin. But what we've seen here today is that there's a lot of other things that we do to monitor and dose adjust our patients, supplement if needed, that you have to think about when thinking about estimated drug cost, aside from just the cost of the drug itself. So we saw heparin does require a little bit more dose adjustments than bivalrudin. However, if patients do have a low amount of antithrombin-3 and we decide to replace, this becomes really costly as well. Transfusions, there was some um, associated with either group, but we saw a little bit less in the bivalrudin group. And depending on how centers decide to monitor, this can be costly for probably both of our anticoagulation agents. So the answer of cost is not quite as simple as the medication cost alone in our patients on ECMO. Two studies evaluated cost in their patients um, in either bivalrudin or heparin. One study looked at the total cost per day and found that um, unfractionated heparin was cheaper. Or sorry, the study looked at the total, um, they looked at the total cost in patients during their entire stay and they found that overall the heparin was cheaper compared to the bivalrudin. But it's worth noting in that study that they didn't supplement antithrombin-3 very often, which may have led to that lower cost for heparin. Whereas a different study looked at the cost per tape between the two medications and found that bivalrudin was actually cheaper. So overall, I would say that depending on how your center decides to supplement antithrombin-3 and monitor, that the cost of which, the question of which is cheaper can really be answered with either agent depending on what you decide to do. So I would say cost, depending on how you decide to monitor and supplement, can really be a draw or be swayed for either agent. So I'm going to ask you, after weighing the pros and cons of both, if you had a patient who could receive either agent, what anticoagulant would you pick? I'm going to go ahead and move to the next slide, um, but it's interesting to see that we do have about 70% of our um, audience picking bivalrudin, about 30% or so picking heparin if a patient could get either agent. So I guess my opinion is that if a patient could get either, I would pick bivalrudin. Since I would say overall, it's got more desirable pharmacokinetic properties as compared to our heparin, as we saw a faster time to our therapeutic goal and a more consistent time of staying within our therapeutic range. And part of this could be contributed that this mechanism of action is independent of antithrombin. And so if patients do have a variable amount of antithrombin um, while being anticoagulant, we don't have to necessarily keep that in mind while being on bivalrudin compared to our heparin. Another thing to think about is that there was the potential that we have less, the less risk of bleeding without increased risk of thrombosis compared to our heparin groups. But overall, it's worth noting that I asked you guys if you could have a patient on either agent which you should pick, but there are specific factors and indications where one agent would be preferred over the other, such as if you're suspecting HIT or if the patient um, has some kind of stasis where bivalrudin may not be optimal. What we've seen, especially in that past 10 years, is that evidence for bivalrudin has really grown. But in a lot of our studies, there was a lot of variation in our population, how these anticoagulants were dosed, and in the monitoring protocols for these agents. So there's not a universally guideline recommended um, potential anticoagulant that really eliminates are um, high clot and high bleeding risk for these patients. So it's important to think about all of these patient-specific factors when selecting your agent.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.